At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Chapter 23 of From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 23 The Projectile Vehicle. On the completion of the Columbiad, the public interest centered in the projectile itself, the vehicle which was destined to carry the three hardy adventurers into space. The new plans had been sent to Breadwill and Company of Albany with the request for their speedy execution. The projectile was consequently cast on the 2nd November, and immediately forwarded by the Eastern Railway to Stones Hill, where it reached without accident on the 10th of that month, where Michel Ardin, Barbicane, and Nicol were waiting impatiently for it. The projectile had now to be filled to a depth of three feet with a bed of water, intended to support a watertight wooden disc, which worked easily within the walls of the projectile. It was upon this kind of raft that the travellers were to take their place. This body of water was divided by horizontal partitions, which the shock of the departure would have to break in succession. Then each sheet of the water, from the lowest to the highest, running off into escape tubes toward the top of the projectile, constituted a kind of spring, and the wooden disc, supplied with extremely powerful plugs, could not strike the lowest plate except after breaking successively the different partitions. Undoubtedly the travellers would still have to encounter a violent recoil after the complete escapement of the water, but the first shock would be almost entirely destroyed by this powerful spring. The upper parts of the walls were lined with a thick padding of leather, fastened upon springs of the best steel, behind which the escape tubes were completely concealed. Thus all imaginable precautions had been taken for averting the first shock, and if they did get crushed they must, as Michel Ardin said, be made of very bad materials. The entrance into this metallic tower was by a narrow aperture contrived in the wall of the cone. This was hermetically closed by a plate of aluminium, fastened internally by powerful screw pressure. The travellers could therefore quit their prison at pleasure, as soon as they should reach the moon. Light and view were given by means of four thick lenticular glass scuttles, two pierced in the circular wall itself, the third in the bottom, the fourth in the top. These scuttles, then, were protected against the shock of departure by plates let into solid grooves, which could easily be opened outwards by unscrewing them from the inside. 
reservoirs firmly fixed contained water and the necessary provisions and fire and light were procurable by means of gas contained in a special reservoir under a pressure of several atmospheres they had only to turn a tap and for six hours the gas would light and warm this comfortable vehicle there now remained only the question of air for allowing for the consumption of air by barbicane his two companions and two dogs which he proposed taking with him it was necessary to renew the air of the projectile now air consists principally of twenty-one parts of oxygen and seventy-nine of nitrogen the lungs absorb the oxygen which is indispensable for the support of life and reject the nitrogen the air expired loses nearly five per cent of the former and contains nearly an equal volume of carbonic acid produced by the combustion of the elements of the blood in an airtight enclosure then after a certain time all the oxygen of the air will be replaced by the carbonic acid a gas fatal to life there were two things to be done then first to replace the absorbed oxygen secondly to destroy the expired carbonic acid both easy enough to do by means of chlorate of potassium and caustic potash the former is a salt which appears under the form of white crystals when raised to a temperature of four hundred degrees it is transformed into chlorate of potash and the oxygen which it contains is entirely liberated now twenty-eight pounds of chlorate of potassium produce seven pounds of oxygen or twenty-four hundred liters the quantity necessary for the travellers during twenty-four hours caustic potash has a great affinity for carbonic acid and it is sufficient to shake it in order for it to seize upon the acid and form bicarbonate of potash by these two means they would be enabled to restore to the vitiated air its life-supporting properties it is necessary however to add that the experiments had hitherto been made in anima villi whatever its scientific accuracy was they were at present ignorant how it would answer with human beings the honour of putting it to the proof was energetically claimed by j t maston since i am not to go said the brave artillerist i may at least live for a week in the projectile it would have been hard to refuse him so they consented to his wish a sufficient quantity of chlorate of potassium and of caustic potash was placed at his disposal together with provisions for eight days and having shaken hands with his friends on the twelfth november at six o'clock a m after strictly informing them not to open his prison before the twentieth at six o'clock p m he slid down the projectile the plate of which was at once hermetically sealed what did he do with himself during that week they could get no information the thickness of the walls of the projectile prevented any sound reaching from the inside to the outside on the twentieth of november at six p m exactly the plate was opened the friends of j t maston had been all along in a state of much anxiety but they were promptly reassured on hearing a jolly voice shouting a boisterous hurrah presently afterwards the secretary of the gun club appeared at the top of the cone in a triumphant attitude 
he had grown fat. End of chapter. Chapter 24 of From the Earth to the Moon This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne Chapter 24 The Telescope of the Rocky Mountains on the 20th October, in the preceding year, after the close of the subscription, the president of the Gun Club had credited the Observatory of Cambridge with the necessary sums for the construction of a gigantic optical instrument. This instrument was designed for the purpose of rendering visible on the surface of the moon any object exceeding nine feet in diameter. At the period when the Gun Club essayed their great experiment, such instruments had reached a high degree of perfection, and produced some magnificent results. Two telescopes in particular, at this time, were possessed of remarkable power and of gigantic dimensions. The first, constructed by Herschel, was thirty-six feet in length, and had an objective glass of four feet six inches. It possessed a magnifying power of six thousand. The second was raised in Ireland, in Parson Town Park, and belongs to Lord Ross. The length of this tube is forty-eight feet, and the diameter of its object glass six feet. It magnifies sixty-four hundred times, and required an immense erection of brickwork and masonry for the purpose of working it, its weight being twelve tons and a half. Still, despite these colossal dimensions, the actual enlargement scarcely exceeded six thousand times in round numbers. Consequently, the moon was brought within no nearer an apparent distance than thirty-nine miles, and objects of less than sixty feet in diameter, unless they were of very considerable length, were still imperceptible. In the present case, dealing with a projectile nine feet in diameter and fifteen feet long, it became necessary to bring the moon within an apparent distance of five miles at most, and for that purpose to establish a magnifying power of forty-eight thousand times. Such was the question proposed to the Observatory of Cambridge. There was no lack of funds. The difficulty was purely one of construction. After considerable discussion as to the best form and principle of the proposed instrument, the work was finally commenced. According to the calculations of the Observatory of Cambridge, the tube of the new reflector would require to be 280 feet in length, and the object glass 16 feet in diameter. Colossal as these dimensions may appear, they were diminutive in comparison with the ten-thousand-foot telescope proposed by the astronomer Hooke only a few years ago. Regarding the choice of locality, that matter was promptly determined. The object was to select some lofty mountain, and there are not many of these in the United States. In fact, there are but two chains of moderate elevation, between which runs the magnificent Mississippi, the King of Rivers, as these Republican Yankees delight to call it. Eastwards rise the Appalachians, 
the very highest point of which, in New Hampshire, does not exceed the very moderate altitude of 5,600 feet. On the west, however, rise the Rocky Mountains, that immense range which, commencing at the Straits of Magellan, follows the western coast of South America under the name of the Andes, or the Cordilleras, until it crosses the Isthmus of Panama and runs up the whole of North America to the very borders of the Polar Sea. The highest elevation of this range still does not exceed 10,700 feet. With this elevation, nevertheless, the gun club was compelled to be content, inasmuch as they had determined that both Telescope and Columbiad should be erected within the limits of the Union. All the necessary apparatus was consequently sent on to the summit of Long's Peak, in the territory of Missouri. Neither pen nor language can describe the difficulties of all kinds which the American engineers had to surmount, or the prodigies of daring and skill which they accomplished. They had to raise enormous stones, massive pieces of wrought iron, heavy corner clamps, and huge portions of cylinder, with an object-glass weighing nearly thirty thousand pounds, above the line of perpetual snow for more than ten thousand feet in height, after crossing desert prairies, impenetrable forests, fearful rapids, far from all centres of population, and in the midst of savage regions, in which every detail of life becomes an almost insoluble problem. And yet, notwithstanding these innumerable obstacles, American genius triumphed. In less than a year after the commencement of the works, towards the close of September, the giant reflector rose into the air to a height of 280 feet. It was raised by means of an enormous iron crane, an ingenious mechanism allowed it to be easily worked towards all the points of the heavens, and to follow the stars from the one horizon to the other during their journey through the heavens. It had cost $400,000. The first time it was directed towards the moon, the observers evinced both curiosity and anxiety. What were they about to discover in the field of this telescope, which magnified objects 48,000 times? Would they perceive peoples, herds of lunar animals, towns, lakes, seas? No. There was nothing which science had not already discovered, and on all the points of its disk the volcanic nature of the moon became determinable with the utmost precision. But the telescope of the Rocky Mountains, before doing its duty to the gun club, rendered immense services to astronomy. Thanks to its penetrative power, the depths of the heavens were sounded to the utmost extent, the apparent diameter of a great number of stars was accurately measured, and Mr. Clark, of the Cambridge staff, resolved the Crab Nebula in Taurus, which the reflector of Lord Ross had never been able to decompose. End of chapter. Chapter 25 of From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne Chapter 25 
final details. It was the 22nd of November. The departure was to take place in ten days. One operation alone remained to be accomplished to bring all to a happy termination, an operation delicate and perilous, requiring infinite precautions, and against the success of which Captain Nicholl had laid his third bet. It was, in fact, nothing less than the loading of the Columbiad, and the introduction into it of four hundred thousand pounds of gun-cotton. Nicholl had thought, not perhaps without reason, that the handling of such formidable quantities of peroxyl would, in all probability, involve a grave catastrophe, and at any rate, that this immense mass of eminently inflammable matter would inevitably ignite when submitted to the pressure of the projectile. There were indeed dangers accruing, as before, from the carelessness of the Americans, but Barbicane had set his heart on success, and took all possible precautions. In the first place, he was very careful as to the transportation of the gun-cotton to Stones Hill. He had it conveyed in small quantities, carefully packed in sealed cases. These were brought by rail from Tampa Town to the camp, and from thence were taken to the Columbiad by barefooted workmen, who deposited them in their places by means of cranes placed at the orifice of the cannon. No steam engine was permitted to work, and every fire was extinguished within two miles of the works. Even in November they feared to work by day, lest the sun's rays acting on the gun-cotton should lead to unhappy results. This led to their working at night, by light produced in a vacuum by means of Ruhmkorff's apparatus, which threw an artificial brightness into the depths of the Columbiad. There the cartridges were arranged with the utmost regularity, connected by a metallic thread, destined to communicate to them all simultaneously the electric spark, by which means this mass of gun-cotton was eventually to be ignited. By the 28th of November, 800 cartridges had been placed in the bottom of the Columbiad. So far, the operation had been successful. But what confusion, what anxieties, what struggles were undergone by President Barbicane? In vain had he refused admission to Stones Hill. Every day the inquisitive neighbors scaled the palisades, some even carrying their imprudence to the point of smoking while surrounded by bales of gun-cotton. Barbicane was in a perpetual state of alarm. J.T. Maston seconded him to the best of his ability— by giving vigorous chase to the intruders, and carefully picking up the still-lighted cigar-ends which the Yankees threw about. A somewhat difficult task, seeing that more than three hundred thousand persons were gathered round the enclosure. Michel Ardin had volunteered to superintend the transport of the cartridges to the mouth of the Columbiad, but the President, having surprised him with an enormous cigar in his mouth, while he was hunting out the rash spectators to whom he himself offered so dangerous an example, saw that he could not trust this fearless smoker, and was therefore obliged to mount a special guard over him. At last, Providence being propitious, this wonderful loading came to a happy termination, Captain Nichols' third bet being thus lost. It remained now to introduce the projectile into the Columbiad, and to place it on its soft bed of gun-cotton. But before doing this, all those things necessary for the journey had to be carefully arranged in the projectile vehicle. These necessaries were numerous, 
and had Ardin been allowed to follow his own wishes, there would have been no space remaining for the travellers. It is impossible to conceive of half the things this charming Frenchman wished to convey to the moon, a veritable stock of useless trifles, but Barbicane interfered and refused admission to anything not absolutely needed. Several thermometers, barometers, and telescopes were packed in the instrument case. The travellers being desirous of examining the moon carefully during their voyage, in order to facilitate their studies they took with them Boer and Merdler's excellent Mappa Silonographica, a masterpiece of patience and observation, which they hoped would enable them to identify those physical features in the moon with which they were acquainted. This map reproduced with scrupulous fidelity the smallest details of the lunar surface which faces the earth. The mountains, valleys, craters, peaks, and ridges were all represented, with their exact dimensions, relative positions, and names, from the mountains Durfel and Leibnitz on the eastern side of the disk to the Mare Frigoris of the North Pole. They took also three rifles and three fowling pieces and a large quantity of balls, shot, and powder. "'We cannot tell whom we shall have to deal with,' said Michel Ardin. "'Men or beasts may possibly object to our visit. It is only wise to take all precautions.' These defensive weapons were accompanied by pickaxes, crowbars, saws, and other useful implements, not to mention clothing adapted to every temperature— from that of the polar regions to that of the torrid zone. Ardin wished to convey a number of animals of different sorts, not indeed a pair of every known species, as he could not see the necessity of acclimatizing serpents, tigers, alligators, or any other noxious beasts in the moon. Nevertheless, he said to Barbicane, some valuable and useful beasts, bullocks, cows, horses, and donkeys, would bear the journey very well and would also be very useful to us. "'I dare say, my dear Ardin,' replied the President, "'but our projectile vehicle is no Noah's Ark, from which it differs both in dimensions and object. Let us confine ourselves to possibilities.' After a prolonged discussion it was agreed that the travellers should restrict themselves to a sporting dog belonging to Nickel, and to a large Newfoundland. Several packets of seeds were also included among the necessaries. Michel Ardin, indeed, was anxious to add some sacks full of earth to sow them in. As it was, he took a dozen shrubs, carefully wrapped up in straw, to plant in the moon. The important question of provisions still remained. It being necessary to provide against the possibility of their finding the moon absolutely barren, Barbicane managed so successfully that he supplied them with sufficient rations for a year. These consisted of preserved meats and vegetables, reduced by strong hydraulic pressure to the smallest possible dimensions. They were also supplied with brandy, and took water enough for two months, being confident, from astronomical observations, that there was no lack of water on the moon's surface. As to provisions— Doubtless the inhabitants of the earth would find nourishment somewhere in the moon. Ardan never questioned this. Indeed, had he done so, he would never have undertaken the journey. "'Besides,' he said one day to his friends, "'we shall not be completely abandoned by our terrestrial friends. They will take care not to forget us.' 
No, indeed, replied J.T. Maston. What do you mean? asked Nicholl. Nothing would be simpler, replied Ardin. The Columbiad will be always there. Well, whenever the moon is in a favourable condition as to the zenith, if not to the perigee, that is to say about once a year, could you not send us a shell packed with provisions which we might expect on some appointed day? Hurrah! Hurrah! cried J.T. Maston. What an ingenious fellow! What a splendid idea! Indeed, my good friends, we shall not forget you. I shall reckon upon you. Then, you see, we shall receive news regularly from the earth, and we shall indeed be stupid if we hit upon no plan for communicating with our good friends here. These words inspired such confidence that Michel Ardin carried all the gun club with him in his enthusiasm. What he said seemed so simple and so easy, so sure of success, that none could be so sordidly attached to this earth as to hesitate to follow the three travellers on their lunar expedition. All being ready at last, it remained to place the projectile in the Columbiad, an operation abundantly accompanied by dangers and difficulties. The enormous shell was conveyed to the summit of Stones Hill. There powerful cranes raised it and held it suspended over the mouth of the cylinder. It was a fearful moment. What if the chain should break under its enormous weight? The sudden fall of such a body would inevitably cause the gun-cotton to explode. Fortunately, this did not happen, and some hours later the projectile vehicle descended gently into the heart of the cannon and rested on its couch of peroxyl, a veritable bed of explosive eiderdown. Its pressure had no result other than the more effectual ramming down of the charge of the Columbiad. "'I have lost,' said the captain, who forthwith paid President Barbicane the sum of three thousand dollars. Barbicane did not wish to accept the money from one of his fellow travellers, but gave way at last before the determination of Nicholl, who wished before leaving the earth to fulfil all his engagements. "'Now,' said Michel Ardin, I have only one thing more to wish for you, my brave captain. What is that? asked Nicholl. It is that you may lose your two other bets. Then we shall be sure not to be stopped on our journey. End of chapter. Chapter 26 of From the Earth to the Moon This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 26 Fire! The first of December had arrived, the fatal day for if the projectile were not discharged that very night at ten hours, forty-six minutes, forty seconds p.m., more than eighteen years must roll by before the moon would again present herself under the same conditions of zenith and perigee. The weather was magnificent. Despite the approach of winter, the sun shone brightly, and bathed in its radiant light that earth which three of her denizens were about to abandon for a new world. 
How many persons lost their rest on the night which preceded this long-expected day? All hearts beat with disquietude, save only the heart of Michel Ardan. That imperturbable personage came and went with his habitual, business-like air, while nothing whatever denoted that any unusual matter preoccupied his mind. After dawn, an innumerable multitude covered the prairie which extends, as far as the eye can reach, round Stones Hill. Every quarter of an hour the railway brought fresh accessions of sightseers, and, according to the statement of the Tampa Town Observer, not less than five millions of spectators thronged the soil of Florida. For a whole month previously the mass of these persons had bivouacked round the enclosure, and laid the foundations for a town which was afterwards called Ardance Town. The whole plain was covered with huts, cottages, and tents. Every nation under the sun was represented there, and every language might be heard spoken at the same time. It was a perfect babble reenacted. All the various classes of American society were mingled together in terms of absolute equality. Bankers, farmers, sailors, cotton planters, brokers, merchants, watermen, magistrates elbowed each other in the most free and easy way. Louisiana Creoles fraternized with farmers from Indiana. Kentucky and Tennessee gentlemen and haughty Virginians conversed with trappers and the half-savages of the lakes and butchers from Cincinnati. Broad-brimmed white hats and Panamas, blue cotton trousers, light-coloured stockings, cambric frills were all here displayed, while upon shirt-fronts, wristbands and neckties, upon every finger, even upon the very ears, they wore an assortment of rings, shirt-pins, brooches, and trinkets, of which the value only equalled the execrable taste. Women, children, and servants, in equally expensive dress, surrounded their husbands, fathers, or masters, who resembled the patriarchs of tribes in the midst of their immense households. At mealtimes all fell to work upon the dishes peculiar to the southern states, and consumed with an appetite that threatened speedy exhaustion of the vittling powers of Florida. Fricasseed frogs, stuffed monkey, fish chowder, underdone possum, and raccoon steaks. And as for the liquors which accompanied this indigestible repast, the shouts, the vociferations that resounded through the bars and taverns, decorated with glasses, tankards, and bottles of marvellous shape, mortars for pounding sugar, and bundles of straws. "'Mint julep!' roars one of the barmen. "'Claret sangaree!' shouts another. "'Cocktail! Brandy smash! Real mint julep in the new style!' All these cries intermingled produced a bewildering and deafening hubbub. But on this day, 1st December, such sounds were rare. No one thought of eating or drinking, and at 4 p.m. there were vast numbers of spectators who had not even taken their customary lunch. And, a still more significant fact, even the national passion for play seemed quelled for the time under the general excitement of the hour. Up till nightfall, a dull, noiseless agitation, such as precedes great catastrophes, ran through the anxious multitude. An indescribable uneasiness pervaded all minds, an indefinable sensation which oppressed the heart. Everyone wished it was over. 
However, about seven o'clock the heavy silence was dissipated. The moon rose above the horizon. Millions of hurrahs hailed her appearance. She was punctual to the rendezvous, and shouts of welcome greeted her on all sides, as her pale beams shone gracefully in the clear heavens. At this moment the three intrepid travellers appeared. This was the signal for renewed cries of still greater intensity. Instantly the vast assemblage, as with one accord, struck up the national hymn of the United States, and Yankee Doodle, sung by five millions of hearty throats, rose like a roaring tempest to the farthest limits of the atmosphere. Then a profound silence reigned throughout the crowd. The Frenchman and the two Americans had by this time entered the enclosure reserved in the centre of the multitude. They were accompanied by the members of the gun club, and by deputations sent from all the European observatories. Barbicane, cool and collected, was giving his final directions. Nickel, with compressed lips, his arms crossed behind his back, walked with a firm and measured step. Michel Ardin, always easy, dressed in a thorough traveller's costume, leather gaiters on his legs, pouched by his side, in loose velvet suit, cigar in mouth, was full of inexhaustible gaiety, laughing, joking, playing pranks with J.T. Maston. In one word, he was the thorough Frenchman, and worse, a Parisian, to the last moment. Ten o'clock struck. The moment had arrived for taking their places in the projectile. The necessary operations for the descent, and the subsequent removal of the cranes and scaffolding that inclined over the mouth of the Columbiad, required a certain period of time. Barbicane had regulated his chronometer to the tenth part of a second by that of Murchison, the engineer, who was charged with the duty of firing the gun by means of an electric spark. Thus the travellers enclosed within the projectile were enabled to follow with their eyes the impassive needle which marked the precise moment of their departure. The moment had arrived for saying good-bye. The scene was a touching one. Despite his feverish gaiety, even Michel Ardin was touched. J.T. Maston had found in his own dry eyes one ancient tear, which he had doubtless reserved for the occasion. He dropped it on the forehead of his dear president. "'Can I not go?' he said. There is still time. Impossible, old fellow, replied Barbicane. A few moments later, the three fellow travellers had ensconced themselves in the projectile, and screwed down the plate which covered the entrance aperture. The mouth of the Columbiad, now completely disencumbered, was open entirely to the sky. The moon advanced upwards in a heaven of the purest clearness, outshining in her passage the twinkling light of the stars. She passed over the constellation of the twins, and was now nearing the halfway point between the horizon and the zenith. A terrible silence weighed upon the entire scene, not a breath of wind upon the earth, not a sound of breathing from the countless chests of the spectators. Their hearts seemed afraid to beat. All eyes were fixed upon the yawning mouth of the Columbiad. Murchison followed with his eye the hand of his chronometer. It wanted scarce forty seconds to the moment of departure, but each second seemed to last an age. At the twentieth there was a general shudder. 
as it occurred to the minds of that vast assemblage that the bold travellers shut up within the projectile were also counting those terrible seconds. Some few cries here and there escaped the crowd. Thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine, forty, fire! Instantly Murchison pressed with his finger the key of the electric battery, restored the current of the fluid, and discharged the spark into the breach of the Columbiad. An appalling, unearthly report followed instantly, such as can be compared to nothing whatever known, not even to the roar of thunder or to the blast of volcanic explosions. No words can convey the slightest idea of the terrific sound. An immense spout of fire shot up from the bowels of the earth as from a crater. The earth heaved up, and with great difficulty some few spectators obtained a momentary glimpse of the projectile victoriously cleaving the air in the midst of the fiery vapours. End of chapter Chapter 27 of From the Earth to the Moon This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne Chapter 27 Foul Weather At the moment when that pyramid of fire rose to a prodigious height into the air, the glare of the flame lit up the whole of Florida, and for a moment day superseded night, over a considerable extent of the country. This immense canopy of fire was perceived at a distance of one hundred miles out at sea, and more than one ship's captain entered in his log the appearance of this gigantic meteor. The discharge of the Columbiad was accompanied by a perfect earthquake. Florida was shaken to its very depths. The gases of the powder, expanded by heat, forced back the atmospheric strata with tremendous violence, and this artificial hurricane rushed like a waterspout through the air. Not a single spectator remained on his feet. Men, women, children, all lay prostrate like ears of corn under a tempest. There ensued a terrible tumult. A large number of persons were seriously injured. J.T. Maston, who, despite of all dictates of prudence, had kept in advance of the mass, was pitched back one hundred and twenty feet, shooting like a projectile over the heads of his fellow-citizens. Three hundred thousand persons remained deaf for a time, as though struck stupefied. As soon as the first effects were over, the injured, the deaf, and lastly, the crowd in general, woke up with frenzied cries. "'Hurrah for Ardin! Hurrah for Barbicane! Hurrah for Nickel!' rose to the skies." Thousands of persons, noses in air, armed with telescopes and race-glasses, were questioning space, forgetting all contusions and emotions in the one idea of watching for the projectile. They looked in vain. It was no longer to be seen, and they were obliged to wait for telegrams from Long's Peak. The director of the Cambridge Observatory was at his post on the Rocky Mountains, and to him, as a skilful and persevering astronomer, all observations had been confided. But an unforeseen phenomenon came in to subject the public impatience to a severe trial. 
the weather heretofore so fine suddenly changed the sky became heavy with clouds it could not have been otherwise after the terrible derangement of the atmospheric strata and the dispersion of the enormous quantity of vapour arising from the combustion of two hundred thousand pounds of peroxyl on the morrow the horizon was covered with clouds a thick and impenetrable curtain between earth and sky which unhappily extended as far as the rocky mountains it was a fatality but since man had chosen so to disturb the atmosphere he was bound to accept the consequences of his experiment supposing now that the experiment had succeeded the travellers having started on the first of december at ten hours forty six minutes forty seconds p m were due on the fourth at zero p m at their destination so up to that time it would have been very difficult after all to have observed under such conditions a body so small as the shell therefore they waited with what patience they might from the fourth to the sixth of december inclusive the weather remaining much the same in america the great european instruments of herschel ross and foucault were constantly directed towards the moon for the weather was then magnificent but the comparative weakness of their glasses prevented any trustworthy observations being made on the seventh the sky seemed to lighten they were in hopes now but their hope was of but short duration and at night again thick clouds hid the starry vault from all eyes matters were now becoming serious when on the ninth the sun reappeared for an instant as if for the purpose of teasing the americans it was received with hisses and wounded no doubt by such a reception showed itself very sparing of its rays on the tenth no change j t maston went nearly mad and great fears were entertained regarding the brain of this worthy individual which had hitherto been so well preserved within his gutta percha cranium but on the eleventh one of those inexplicable tempests peculiar to those intertropical regions was let loose in the atmosphere a terrific east wind swept away the groups of clouds which had been so long gathering and at night the semi-disc of the orb of night rode majestically amidst the soft constellations of the sky end of chapter chapter 28 of from the earth to the moon this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina from the earth to the moon by jules verne chapter twenty eight the final chapter called a new star that very night the startling news so impatiently awaited burst like a thunderbolt over the united states of the union and thence darting across the ocean ran through all the telegraphic wires of the globe the projectile had been detected thanks to the gigantic reflector of long's peak here is the note received by the director of the observatory of cambridge it contains the scientific conclusion regarding this great experiment of the gun club long's peak december twelve to the officers of the observatory of cambridge 
the projectile discharged by the Columbiad at Stones Hill has been detected by Messrs. Belfast and J.T. Maston, 12th December, at 8.47 p.m., the moon having entered her last quarter. This projectile has not arrived at its destination. It has passed by the side, but sufficiently near to be retained by the lunar attraction. The rectilinear movement has thus become changed into a circular motion of extreme velocity, and it is now pursuing an elliptical orbit round the moon, of which it has become a true satellite. The elements of this new star we have as yet been unable to determine. We do not yet know the velocity of its passage. The distance which separates it from the surface of the moon may be estimated at about 2,833 miles. However, two hypotheses come here into our consideration. One, either the attraction of the moon will end by drawing them into itself, and the travellers will attain their destination, or, two, the projectile, following an immutable law, will continue to gravitate round the moon till the end of time. At some future time our observations will be able to determine this point, but till then the experiment of the gun club can have no other result than to have provided our solar system with a new star. Signed, J. Belfast. To how many questions did this unexpected denouement give rise? What mysterious results was the future reserving for the investigations of science? At all events, the names of Nicol, Barbicane, and Michel Ardin were certain to be immortalized in the annals of astronomy. When the dispatch from Long's Peak had once become known, there was but one universal feeling of surprise and alarm. Was it possible to go to the aid of these bold travellers? No, for they had placed themselves beyond the pale of humanity, by crossing the limits imposed by the Creator on his earthly creatures. They had air enough for two months, they had victuals enough for twelve, but after that there was only one man who would not admit that the situation was desperate. He alone had confidence, and that was their devoted friend, J. T. Masson. Besides, he never let them get out of sight. His home was henceforth the post at Long's Peak, his horizon the mirror of that immense reflector. As soon as the moon rose above the horizon, he immediately caught her in the field of the telescope. He never let her go for an instant out of his sight, and followed her assiduously in her course through the stellar spaces. He watched with untiring patience the passage of the projectile across her silvery disk, and really the worthy man remained in perpetual communication with his three friends, whom he did not despair of seeing again some day. "'Those three men!' said he, have carried into space all the resources of art, science, and industry. With that, one can do anything, and you will see that, some day, they will come out all right. End of chapter, end of book. Thank you for listening, and do not fail to listen to Round the Moon, Jules Verne's sequel to this book.